As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. So, Matt, we were at Walmart the other day, which is a scary proposition in and of itself. But I saw this guy and he was throwing Stephen King novels at people. Just yeah, just like hucking them at people. And I couldn't figure out why. Then it hit me. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the graveyard. Thank you for joining us tonight. My name is Adam. And my name's Matt. Now, pull up a tombstone or settle into your casket and get comfortable because this is Graveyard Tales. (laughs) All right, everybody, here we are again. Matt, how you doing tonight, brother? Hey man, I am I'm doing well. Good. And uh we're enjoying the false fall. Yep, here too, here man. In, and and it's been really nice. Mm-hmm. Of course we know it's gonna be back to Hell's Front Porch. Oh yeah. Uh in a few days. Oh yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, the last couple mornings um gotten up and six thirty there's a chill in the air. And it's uh-huh. like that's kinda nice. But like you uh-huh. said, we'll be sweating our butts off again here pretty soon so before we get into it we want to say go check out the podbelly network at podbelly.com we're proud to be members of the podbelly network and you can find a list of shows to listen to that you may not find anywhere else plus they have tips on podcasting there if you're thinking about starting a podcast or you have started a podcast and you're like you know, it would be nice to get some little tips on what i'm doing and stuff like that go to podbelly.com and they've got a little tips section there but they also have a a a section where you can search podcast and you'll see us on there but you'll also see maybe some of our friend podcast and a whole bunch of other ones that you might not have found any other way so go check them out at podbelly.com while you're on the internet after you check out podbelly.com go over to patreon.com slash graveyard tales and you can sign up to become a patron Uh, we have three different levels and our $10 a month patrons, they get the video version of the episode. Um, plus, that includes some stuff that we don't cut out. Um, like this episode, I told Matt a joke that I could not tell on the regular episode. Well, you'll get that on <laughs> Patreon. Um, when you see our ugly mugs uh, recording this, and, and it's kind of like you're here. Um, so go over there and sign up. Um, you also get... 
a bonus episode a week. We try to do one a week. And our $10 and $5 a month patrons get the video versions plus the audio version. Um, Our $1 a month just gets the audio version. But go over there, check it out, sign up. Um, our, Our patrons are basically like producers of the show because we couldn't keep doing it without our patrons' support. Um, they are what helps, like we say in our thank you letter, you keep the tombstones polished and the caskets sealed up tight, uh, which yeah. is a funny way of saying you help keep this this junk rolling here. So now, Matt, that's all I've got. So why don't you tell us, what are we talking about tonight, brother? Okay, Adam. So tonight we're going to head to Pennsylvania and we're going to take a look at the Pennhurst Asylum. Now, you know, no, no fancy lead in tonight, no build up. I mean, we're going to talk about one of the most haunted asylums that I've ever researched. Um, yeah, it's crazy. I, I know that, you know, we, we, you hear a lot and I talk about it. I make jokes about it, about everything is the most haunted this or the most haunted, whatever. Um, I don't know that they consider Pennhurst to be the most haunted. Um, but the stories that I was able to uncover researching this place, they're phenomenal. Yeah. I mean, there's, yep. there's stuff that I have not, I, I have not discovered in other research of, of haunted places, especially haunted asylums. You know, most of the time you get a lot of similar stories. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's true. But but with Pennhurst, there's a lot that I've I've never seen before, and and we've got an absolute incredible story to share um, later on in the show uh, about an investigation that was done um, with uh, with folks from Ripley's Believe It or Not. So, as with everything, especially a place like Pennhurst. You've got to understand the history yeah. to, to be able to wrap your head around why a place like this is so active. Right, right. So, so Adam, share with us the history of Pennhurst Asylum. All right. Um, as we always say, go check our sources down in the bottom of the show notes. You can find where we found all this information. And I'm going to be reading a lot of specifics um, and a lot of testimonial you know, stuff right from people's mouths. Um, so if you want to see where I found it, go in our show notes, check those out. You can follow the links over there. And there's more than what I'm going to share tonight because there's just not enough time. Um, if we did a two or three part episode, maybe we could share more, but graveyard tales fashion, we try to keep it to one episode. Um, but check our sources, bottom of the show notes. Now, like Matt was saying, asylums are always crazy places, and Penhurst is no exception. I'll discuss in a little bit some of the abusive and scary history um, that it has accumulated. Now, a, a former special assistant to Penhurst superintendent said this, said, quote, Penhurst was a mistake from day one, but it was a mistake made by all of us following the dictates of the best minds of its time, end quote. So that kind of tells you right there where we're going. 
Um, yeah. If that's what someone working there says, look, this was a mistake from day one. And I, I kind of tend to believe that. Um, now, some of this information I I got here at the beginning came from the Weird New Jersey site. So if you haven't checked out Weird New Jersey, they got a ton of stuff on there. And if you like our stuff, you'll you'll like the Weird New Jersey site. So go check them out. But it says Penhurst first opened its doors in November of 1908. And due to pressure to accept not only the mentally and physically handicapped, but also immigrants, criminals, and orphans who could not be housed elsewhere, it was overcrowded um, within only a few years. And actually, I think it was crowded a lot quicker than a few years. But I'm going to, I'll be getting into um, some of the quotes here. And just so you know, I'm reading these. And this is their words. Um, so don't yell at me for saying any of this. <laughs> Opened in 1908 as the Eastern Pennsylvania Institution for the Feeble-Minded and Epileptic, but it was better known by its popular name, Penhurst. Um, it was part of a national trend to segregate individuals that, quote, intellectual uh, and developmental disabilities that were then referred to as defective, degenerate, or unfit from the mainstream society. Uh, fearful that existing institutions at Elwyn, which is outside Philadelphia, and Polk, which is in Venago County, would be overwhelmed by what they saw as a rising tide of hereditary, quote, feeble-mindedness. Now, Philadelphia public health officials like Martin Barr, Joseph Neff, and George Stanley Woodward joined other medical professionals in persuading the state legislature to provide relief through um, perpetual quarantine. So over eight decades, more than 10,500 individuals resided at the 1,400-acre facility outside of Spring City in rural Chester County. At its peak, more than 3,500 people were in custodial care at Pennhurst at one time. Hmm. So the, the feeble-minded, that just, that sticks Mm -hmm. sticks in my crawl i, I know that dude just a awful i know and that, awful that's term. why I, I wanted to say look this is this is not me this is their words right. from back in the day um but yeah it it hurts me as well to hear that said um the way that and and we've discussed this on other shows too about asylums and and stuff but the way people were referred to and treated then if you had anything outside of the quote norm. Right. You know, and it's, it, it's, it's sad. Now this goes on to say that like many similar facilities of the era, Pennhurst was functioned almost completely independently from the rest of society. It operated its own power plant, policed its own grounds and produced its own food. Any additional needs were supplied by a railway line that connected the campus to the outside world. The facility could operate without any interaction with the surrounding community, and that was the way that the community preferred it. So they they wanted this asylum there, but they wanted it so that they didn't have to deal with these people at all. They right. could send them there and never have to see them or interact with them ever again. And 
I got a couple things here later that I'm going to talk about, and you're going to go, you sent them there for that? <laughs> and I know. These people, I know. It's, it's ridiculous. They got sent there for something insane and then were there their entire lives. Now, like I mentioned earlier, um, as time went on, the institution would be pressured to also house and hold immigrants, criminals, and orphans. So it became the solution for ridding society of all the, quote, undesirables. In fact, the institution's campus functioned as a self-contained city, like I said, and the residents would complete all the tasks necessary to run their small society. So Mm -hmm. they were put in there and then they were made to keep it running in order to keep themselves, keep them away from the rest of society. It's just, I, I don't have words. I know. I know. It's, it's insane. I I laugh because it it just seems so absurd. Yeah. You know, that's the problem is the absurdity of what, at the time they were doing, you just, you, it, it's hard to wrap your mind around. So now this says that many patients at the asylum had no pre-existing mental or emotional conditions whatsoever, yet found themselves trapped in the institution for the rest of their lives. Like I was saying, upon entry, patients were sorted into categories based on, all right, here we go. More quotes imbecile or insane, epileptic or healthy, and dental categories of good, poor, or treated. These qualifications would dictate their lodgings and care. Epileptic or healthy. Yep. That's funny. Uh, Funny, strange. Yeah. So if you're not epileptic, you're healthy. Apparently, yeah. And if you're epileptic, then you're not healthy, apparently. Yeah. It just, these things go to show how little was understood about psychology. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And at, you know, in the early 1900s. Yep. Yep. I, I don't know. I, like I said, I don't have the words to, to say what I want about it. <laughs> um, especially on a PG yeah, show, can, you know. Uh-huh. Now, this goes on to say that although it was originally designed to house no more than 500 patients, by the year 1912, the institution was already overcrowded and staff members were unable to give proper care to each patient with some abusing them. Um, Throughout its 79 years of operations, it housed over 10,000 residents, like I said. Now, we've discussed other asylums and prisons that had become overcrowded, and when they do the treatment of the patients or prisoners, if it's a um, a penal colony that was overcrowded, and that treatment takes a steep decline. And the cleanliness of the facility also declines. And they end up, they could sleep in their own filth and medical care is almost non-existent. Um, so it, it gets really bad. So the Pinhurst Project and Bill Baldini they actually document cases of abuse and neglect at the asylum. And that link is in the show notes here. But we'll get into what uh, Bill Bill 
Baldini, and I don't know if I'm saying his name correctly or not, but um, what he did and uncovered. Now, in 1968, WCAU-10 news reporter Bill Baldini documented the crowded conditions at Pennhurst in a five-night expose that shocked and angered the public. Baldini blamed society's indifference, not the staff and administrators, for allowing such conditions to persist and urged viewers to take the initiative by contacting their state legislatures to demand change. And in a way, he's right, because Mm -hmm. they didn't want anything to do with this, the people that they sent to Pennhurst. So if they don't care, then there's there's no pressure put on the staff or administrators to treat them properly. Right. Now, granted, the staff and administrators probably shouldn't have done that in the first place, whether the public cared or not, but yeah. that's a whole nother thing. Well, you know, one thing that that I do know is that caregiver burnout is is a real thing. Sure. Yeah. And and in the job that I do, I see it. I see it often. I see it building. And we try to do everything to um, cut that off. You know, we, we tell folks, you know, look, you need to go out. You need to get out of the house. Mm-hmm. You need to go shopping. Go see a movie. Go visit with friends. Something. You've got to figure it out because you're you're cooping yourself up and taking care of another individual 24 hours a day. It, it, it wears you down mm-hmm. physically and emotionally. Yep. So take understanding that take that and put it in Pinhurst where you've got hundreds of people that you're taking care of. Every single day, yep. In in horrid condition, you you don't go into a situation like that and go. You know what? I think I'm going to abuse the hell out of some institutionalized mm-hmm. individuals mm-hmm. today. You don't. Most you people don't. don't. Yeah, but yeah, you're right. You know, there of course there's plenty of you know sociopaths out there that would right. be like, yeah, that sounds cool. Um, but but. Most people don't think that way, but when you are put in that situation day after day after day, you begin to snap, Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's too much. And you can only imagine that if an institution like Pennhurst was showing so little ability to care for their, their patients, their residents. I mean, you can't imagine that they cared for their staff any. No, no, that's true. You know, there's nobody checking up on the mental health of the staff that's there. Right. Hey, you know, how are you doing? How are you handling all this? No. You know, maybe you need to take some time away. Uh Uh-uh. No, they're overcrowded. You know, things are a mess. The job is way, way more than what probably... 90% 90% of the people that came to work there expected. Mm-hmm. And all of that works together to lead to 
horrific, abusive conditions. Yep. I mean, exactly. it's, it's just, it's a recipe for disaster and we've seen it in other asylums as well. Yep. Yep. And uh, you make very valid points, um, with the burnout and then, um, the care from the administrators to the faculty, if they're going to take on that many people and the conditions for the residents there are going to be that bad, the staff has to work in those conditions as well. Right. So right. they're subject to the conditions as well. Now, when Baldini asked the, the, the neighbor, the neighbors there basically to get involved, um, that grassroots effort actually worked. Now, the state allocated $21 million for the deteriorating facility, resulting in construction of the new Horizons building, which was uh, now home to the Southeast Pennsylvania Veterans Administration. Um, the rest of the money was redirected to pay for community programs. By the early 70s, changes were taking place not only in the care and treatment of the residents, but in the public consciousness as well. Uh, when a class action lawsuit brought against Pennhurst and the state of Pennsylvania in 1974 thrust the institution into the national spotlight, it sparked a movement to end the forced, institution, forced institutionalization of those with developmental disabilities. Rocked by years of bad publicity, Pennhurst closed its doors in 1987. And in a second, I'm going to talk about that, um, that class action lawsuit. but. Um, it, if anything came out of the Pennhurst debacle, at least it was something that allowed the change that happened where you didn't institutionalize people with developmental disabilities. Yeah. Sometimes all it takes is for someone to shine a light on this stuff Mm -hmm. and, and People realize, man, that's horrid. Yep. You know, we, what, what could we possibly do to make this better? Right. So thankfully, um, that Bill Baldini did that. Now the next part, we've not done this before. Um, but since the, uh, Pennhurst project that I mentioned has done all this collecting of people's stories, I think they should be told. So I want to take a brief look at some of the stories from people who actually resided at Pennhurst. Now, the first one comes from Gerald Wheaton. Um, he's 61 now, um, and he resided. He's actually older than 61. He's 61 when, this, uh, when he gave this interview here, but he resided at Pennhurst between 1948 to 1971. So think about how long he was there. Now, Gerald Wheaton was three years old when he and his sister, Teresa, were court-ordered to Pennhurst because their parents were fighting. Good Lord. Right. So he would spend the next 24 years keeping his head low and working at a series of unpaid institutional jobs. Gerald Wheaton said, quote, equal rights, that went out the window if you were in an institution. They didn't care. To them, if it was, uh, they didn't care whether it was fair or wrong. They figured they had a right to do whatever they wanted to do to you. 
I figured when I was up there, I prayed out my heart. I stood out on the ball field and said, Father, forgive them because they have not known what they have done. End quote. So he's basically saying they, you had no rights and whatever they wanted to do to you, they felt was justified. Mm. Since he was three. Yep. He and his sister both because his parents were fighting. Now, another one, Mike Koval, uh, he was at Pennhurst from 1942 to 1970. Mike Koval, this says, is an upbeat guy who doesn't let his past life in an institution keep him down. He and his twin brother were sent to Pennhurst after their father married a second time and their stepmother did not want them living with her. The boys were 13 years old at the time. Oh, my God. Yep. So... The dad got married, their stepmother, the evil stepmother thing, said, no, I don't want these kids here. So instead of the dad saying, well, screw you then, these are my kids, he said, oh, okay, and sent them to Penhurst. Yeah, forget boarding school or military academy. Mm -hmm. You know, we'll just institutionalize these these 13-year-old kids. And that was okay. Yep. Yeah, there was I mean, nothing it, wrong we, with that. You, we think, we think, oh my God, you know these parents, what the heck? And then you think this was perfectly fine mm-hmm. to the to society at the time. This yep. was just, it, it, oh yeah, that's what yeah, they okay, did. yeah. Put them in the institution. Yep. Now, granted, and you know this because you you have a thirteen year old, but you do want to institutionalize 13 year olds sometimes. <laughs> yeah. But you just don't, That's right. <laughs> you know, you feel, you feel like sometimes that you need to be institutionalized. That's yeah. That's true too. 13 year old. <laughs> that's true too. Yeah. Um, now Rob Gorman and Bill, uh, Penny Packer were Pennhurst residents. Now Bill Penny Packer and Rob Gorman, both came to Penhurst as children with cerebral palsy. The two became fast friends and spent much of their time together on uh, on the ward. In 1980, they moved together to a group home in Collegeville. Now, it says, quote, I was court committed to Penhurst because my sister couldn't take care of me. Uh, we were both in D1, Devon Building, first floor, on on the ward, we had some people who fed us too fast because they had a lot of people at the time. They were always a lot of people that needed care. We just watched TV. No one ever talked to us too much. I did not like it there at all. I'm I am not too keen on talking about it because it upsets me sometimes, said Rob Gorman. Yeah. So, I mean, there again, you had somebody, two people with cerebral palsy. And they institutionalized them instead of, and then they, like he said, they fed them too fast because they didn't have time because they were overcrowded Mm -hmm. and all this. And nobody took care of them. They just stuck them in front of a TV and they wasted away, basically. Now, I want to end my part here, Matt, with two things. Um, One, I want to look at patient treatment. And then the other one. I want to look at that. It ties into patient treatment, but look at that class action lawsuit. So I'm going to preface this. This does get a little brutal at points. So be warned. I'm not going to go into graphic detail, but there is going to be some 
mention of what they did to some of these patients, and it does get kind of brutal. So if you want to skip ahead to Matt's part, that's fine. Um, but if you sit through it, I warned you. <laughs> it says that injuries were very common at Pennhurst, especially due to the lack of staff. In January 1977, there were 833 minor and 25 major injuries reported. On January 8th, 1975, a patient was reported to have bit off three quarters of a patient's earlobe while the other resident was asleep. Not too long after this, another patient was reported to have pushed a resident to the floor so hard that it resulted in the other patient's death. So Lord. if you do have people there that have developmental disabilities and they are violent disabilities, they had to be kept to themselves or watched when they're in uh, uh, in with other people that are more mild, I guess, mm-hmm. in the disabilities. Um, but they had so many people they couldn't watch them. So they had yeah. these people with violent tendencies in with these others. And it could have been what they deemed, quote, normal people at the time, but were institutionalized that just were mean people and and then treating these people with developmental disabilities poorly pushing them down and stuff like that this goes on to say that despite the high number of patients requiring special care the state provided the institution with meager funds there were very few doctors nurses and orderlies available to meet the patient's needs many patients spent their days and nights trapped in metal cribs in horrid conditions Others were so desperate for human contact that they went to great lengths for attention by injuring themselves or even smearing themselves with their own feces in hopes of a bath. Mm. Cruel punishments were common at the facility. Overworked staff responded to unruly patients by drugging them into submission or chaining them to their beds. Other residents were isolated for such long periods of time that they regressed and lost their, uh, their will to speak fight, or even live. One particularly harsh rule, chastise patients for biting. When a patient bit someone the first time, he or she was reprimanded. But if it happened again, the patients were sent to a dentist who would pull all of their teeth. Thousands of teeth were removed in a rusty dentist chair that still sits in the tunnels beneath the Penhurst complex. Man, it, it jumps, right? Mm-hmm. It goes from don't bite to we're going to yank all your teeth. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there there what? was no, there there's no like progression of, now you should never get to, I'm going to take all your teeth out. Right. But there right. was, there but was you, no progression of punishment. You know, it's yeah, like a slap I mean, on the wrist to, oh my God, we're one of the worst things we could do. Yeah. So. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, there's, let's, let's find some middle ground here. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, right, right. Now, this this next part comes from the Penhurst Memorial and Preservation Alliance. And these are expert excerpts from the fact section of the federal district court case Halderman versus Penhurst State School and Hospital. Um, and they demonstrate the horrific conditions, lack of funding created at Penhurst. Uh, this says it was only through the Dedication of the overworked staff, it seems that any humanity at all was afforded to this uh, institution. So we have talked about 
how poorly the staff treated the patient, but there were good staff members there that tried to help out and were probably the only reason that it didn't get worse. Yeah. Yeah. So some of these excerpts include uh, point one, there were no psychologists uh, on duty at Pennhurst at night or over the weekend. Thus, if a resident has an emotional crisis, he or she may go without treatment until the next morning or until the weekend is over. And, you know, some may say, well, that, that doesn't seem like a, a bad deal. But if you need it and there's not help there, that is a bad deal. What do you do for the weekend until the psychologist shows up? You know, they you chain you up. Bed? Yeah. Yep, exactly. Um, next one says at Pennhurst, restraints are used as control measures in lieu of adequate staffing. Restraints can be either physical or chemical. The physical restraints range from placing the individual into a seclusion room to binding the person's hands or ankles with muffs or posies and binding the individual to a bed or a chair. Chemical restraints are usually psychotropic, i.e. tranquilizing drugs. Mm-hmm. So because they were so short-staffed, they couldn't handle the, quote, unruly patients well, so they would bind them in one way or another. Seclusion rooms, next point. Seclusion rooms have been used to punish aggressive behavior. One 18-year-old individual spent six consecutive days in a seclusion cell in 1974 for assaulting a Down syndrome resident. Next point from this court document. Often, physical restraints are also used due to staff shortages. An extreme example is a female resident who... During the month of June 1976, was in a physical restraint for 651 hours and five minutes. For the month of August 1976, was in physical restraints for 720 hours. During September 76, was in physical restraints for 674 hours, 20 minutes. And during the month of October 1976, was in physical restraints for 647 hours and five minutes. Good God. Can you I mean, imagine that's that's worse than prisons in the United States? Oh, yeah. I just uh, to be put in physical restraints for that long. Um, the next point says psychotropic drugs at Pennhurst are often used for control and not for treatment at the rate of drug use on some of the units in it. Uh, is extraordinarily high. So, yeah, like I said, it's for restraint, not to help the patient. Um, The next point says the physical environment at Pennhurst is hazardous to the residents, both physically and psychologically. There is often excrement and urine on ward floors and living areas um, that do not meet minimal professional standards of cleanliness. Outbreaks of pinworms and infectious diseases are common. And if you got feces around, you're going to get some parasite like pinworms or something. Oh, yeah. Now, the last one I got here says, in addition, there is some staff abuse of residents. In 1976, one resident was raped by a staff person. One resident was badly bruised when a staff person hit him with a set of keys. 
Another resident was thrown several feet across a room by a staff person, and one resident was hit by a staff person with a shackle belt. On each occasion, an investigation was conducted and the staff person responsible was suspended and or terminated. But I know that was brutal to get through. I know that there was some tough things in there. Um, But I felt it needed to be said along with the quotes from the actual patients of Pennhurst to kind of set up the activity that we have now that Matt's going to talk about. Yeah. Yeah. And man, do we have plenty of it. Um, now the, uh, the shore paranormal research society or SPRS have become the official paranormal investigators for Pennhurst asylum. Now the SPRS is, uh, in ocean County, New Jersey. Uh, they're a team of trained individuals whose sole purpose is to find the truth behind claims of paranormal activity. Now, according to Jim Ansbach, who is the group's founder and case manager, Penhurst is loaded with this kind of activity. Mm-hmm. Um, this group has conducted several large-scale investigations uh, of Penhurst's many buildings and documented a variety of evidence of paranormal activity, including photos, videos, recordings of voice phenomena, and personal encounters with spirits. Now, among the recordings, um, now these are not EVPs, which we'll get into some of those, but these are just the recordings of the sounds of disembodied voices. Okay. They have recordings of, of hearing uh, voices saying, go away, I'll kill you, we're upset, and why'd you come here? Huh. So they even said that there was a, an unknown male voice that says, I'm scared. And then a female voice will ask, why won't you leave? Okay. Huh. There are other reports of slamming doors, footsteps, and sounds of vomiting oh, coming wow. from otherwise empty rooms. Now, that that sounds of vomiting, that's a new one on me. I've not that, ever seen that. Yeah, that's what uh, I was about to say. That That's new. I've, I've not heard, um, even in, in like hospitals, where you would expect there to be sickness like that we don't see many reenactments or anything like that of somebody getting sick or being sick right and you know that's a very distinct sound mm-hmm. you know you can you can tell when that's going on well it's like um, that joke you should just make all alarm clocks the sound of a dog throwing up because nothing oh, yeah. will get you out of bed quicker <laughs> that's right that's right the only thing that make you move faster is a kid throwing up that's sleeping in your bed. Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, and it's you know, can't bar the door. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but visitors to Penhurst commonly report the sounds of children's voices and laughter throughout the complex. There have also been reports of old medical instruments being moved or even thrown. 
Hmm. And doors slam routinely despite rooms being totally empty. And and understand this, uh, Pennhurst the the campus is quite large. Um, yeah. we're not talking about a a single building facility, even a large one. We're talking about an entire campus yeah. of of multiple buildings that were constructed over the years to a house. small city. Yeah, the growing number of residents. Yeah, it looks like a small city. Um, you know, and it and it and it kind of ran that way. Mm-hmm. So when when folks go and do these investigations at Pennhurst, um, it, it's it's not we're going to spend the night right here in, in this in this building and capture everything we can because there's so many buildings. I mean, it, it right. would take nights and nights and nights of this to investigate the entire area, but they have done it. Um, Penhurst has the distinction of having the, uh, the longest continuous paranormal investigation that lasted, I think two weeks. Oh, wow. That's a long time. That's a long time. And you can actually go online. You can view it. You know, they, they made a tel- a television special out of it. Um, but you can go and watch it and, uh, it doesn't take two weeks. It's like, oh, good. It's like a Ken, it's like a Ken Burns documentary, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. get it on DVD, get all 112 hours of yep. Pennhurst investigation. No, it, it, 13 like DVDs. That. Yeah. <laughs> well, before you go on one thing that I, um, I didn't bring up you. You said there are voices that say, why did you come here? Uh, why are you staying here? That makes sense to me. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because if you're stuck there, if your spirit is there, you're going to try to keep other people from coming there. And you're not understanding why people keep coming to this place that tortured you. Right. Right. You know, why? Why would you be here? But mm-hmm. I would imagine too that was a common question yeah, um, that was asked uh, among the residents there of you know why are you here mm-hmm. you know especially for the people that um they they didn't they didn't seem to have a disability yeah that they got would put have there because they necessitated them being there yeah right. their stepmom didn't want them right so you know so I imagine that was something that was heard quite often. Yeah, probably. But let's take a look at them. It's it's some of the activity that occurs in the different buildings. Now, uh, in the Quaker building, people have reported numerous shadows that manifest and then dissipate at will. Hmm. So I I, I assume when they say that term at will, I, I wonder, is it just they they're thinking that they're looking at something that is intelligent? You know, that, that that's what it sounds is, like. Yeah, I mean, it, it's not. We just see some shadows, right? You know, it's the shadows come when they want and they leave when they want. Mm-hmm. Now, these shadows include what appears to be a small female child with long black hair, a hunched-over presence with long dangling arms, and the upper portion of bodies looking over or around obstacles. You know, these are all the different shadows that have been reported there right right doors and rocking chairs 
have moved without anyone being near them. Investigators have reported being shoved from behind, one in particular stating that it was hard enough to leave a deep red mark on the small of their back. Oh, wow. How hard do you got to push somebody yeah. to, to leave a red mark? Yeah, that's like a punch or a slap. Yeah. And, and even then, how much energy would it take for a spirit to do something like right, that? Right, right. Yeah. One investigator was scratched on the arm by an unknown object when they weren't close to anyone, anything, or near any wall. Hmm. Objects have been reported being thrown in the basement, such as a pry bar, a brass fixture, and various other objects. Multiple EVPs, as well as EMF spikes throughout the building when there is no electricity supplied to any building there. Okay. Hmm. Psychic medium Sharon Pugh has felt multiple energies, including a possible demonic force or at least a past life that wasn't a very nice person. Yeah. Okay. This all occurs in one building at Pennhurst. This is in inside the Quaker building. Yeah. And you know, that's, that's more than some of the haunted houses we have investigated or we've, we've researched. Yeah. No kidding. Okay. It, it really I mean, is. And that's, this is one building in this complex that has all of this going on. Okay. But other buildings have their own situations as well. Um, the Limerick building, the Limerick inside the Limerick building, people have reported seeing the apparition of a woman in an old style nurse's uniform. Um, and that was observed by a firefighter, a police officer and a Marine. Hmm. Okay. People of high integrity, you would assume, right? Um, right. That that reported seeing this uh, apparition of a woman in a in a nurse's uniform. Uh, multiple EVPs have also been recorded here. Now, the Devon Building, which Adam mentioned earlier, uh, there have been reports of mysterious sounds, and also multiple EVPs have been recorded. The Mayflower Building, which we're, um, we're going to talk about um, a little bit more. Um, the Mayflower Building, investigators have reported sightings of shadow people, and some have reported being touched. Now, one of the asylum hosts, Ashley McIver, relates a story of hearing a music box playing that could be heard throughout the entire building. Um, the sound seemed to be coming from the third floor, yet no source could actually be found. So it wasn't like an old radio yeah. was up there left on. Um, you know, there certainly wasn't a music box or, or any other reason for that music. It's not like it's a PA system because there's no power to that building. Right, right. Yeah, no power. Now, the Tinicum building, one investigator reported feeling something touch their leg and has also, many old uh, EVPs have also been recorded. Now, in the Philadelphia building, there have been loud sounds and voices heard coming from the building. Investigators, on one occasion, surrounded the building 
and entered it via the tunnel system only to find that there was no one in the building and they couldn't have fled without being seen. So it's so in the Philadelphia building, the disturbances are so loud. They can be heard from outside the building. Yeah. And I, I think it's cool that they kind of snuck in another way just to check, you know, mm-hmm. cause if it's yeah. people and they're pulling a prank, they'd expect you to come rushing in the front door. Right. right. So it, it's cool that they kind of snuck in, but I can't believe it's so loud. You hear it from outside. And Adam, you, you touch on an interesting point about there being people in there. Um, locals will say that sneaking into Pine, uh, to Pinhurst was kind of a rite of passage for high schoolers. You know, the, these kids looking for, you know, e- either some type of hazing ritual or just, uh, you won't do it, you know, kind of a, I dare you to go. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also been, some evidence that uh, there has been occult activity in there. Um, they even mention in some articles uh, evidence of satanic worship. There is tons of graffiti in the building and in the buildings, and that is what leads them uh, to believe this. They said that the eye of Horus is a is a common one. Um, but there, there's pictures of, uh, you know, demons, uh, goat headed individuals. Um, there's a lot of graffiti that says things like welcome to hell, those kind of things. Um, so, you know, teenagers get in there and they do stupid stuff. Um, even if they're doing it just to make it look like there was some occult activity going on. There have bound to have been people that go in there thinking they can absolutely, you know, use a Ouija board yeah. or, or have a seance, try to communicate. And what some of the hosts have said is you get in there and you start poking around and you start trying to summon something. Maybe you do and mm-hmm. you have no idea what you're doing. Or what you could possibly summon. Right. So, you know, that's, I had not ever considered that. I mean, we've talked about, you don't mess with that kind of stuff because you don't know what you could bring. Mm -hmm. But if, if you, if you're going to a place that is so active, like Pinhurst, you're just inviting trouble. By oh, doing yeah. something oh, like yeah. this, whether it affects you in the long run or not, you're just adding, you know, more of an entity to a place that's already crammed full. Yeah. Yeah. And then, then, you know, none of us really know how Ouija boards work and people will claim they do and all this, yeah. but yeah. we don't know exactly how that works. So, by doing that there, like you said, a place with so much activity, are you increasing the energy at that place and allowing the the spirits or negative in, entities that are already there to become more powerful to where they can 
throw stuff and and leave welts on people and hear the noises from outside could that be adding to it or yeah. you know like you said are you bringing something else into this place that is making it even worse yeah and there, there's a reason why ouija boards don't come in this house yeah well think about this adam what if maybe it's not you're adding to the energy but what if activity like this, like going in there and trying to have a seance and communicate with something, what if that doesn't add to the energy, but it focuses the energy? Oh, it, yeah. It brings it to a point to where maybe you've, you've harnessed enough energy that something could cross over. Yeah. Um, you know, I, you know, it's a, it's a thought, but. I, I think with a place with as much energy as Penhurst appears to have, um, mm-hmm. I don't, I don't know that anything, uh, aside from going in there and, and doing a human sacrifice is going to add to the negative energy that's already there. But it certainly, at least in my opinion, could, could focus it down, uh, to where yeah. it, it's all built up in one location and, you know, who knows what could happen at that point. Yeah. That that's true. Yeah, it's true. Now the administration building on the Pennhurst campus uh, has been investigated, and multiple voices have been heard at various times. There's been EVPs recorded, and they even have an EVP of what sounds like a toilet flushing. Hmm. Okay, which that's that's another new one. I've not ever heard that. No, but it's important to know that. That building has no running water or bathroom fixtures. Okay. That's weird. So not only is there no running water, there's not even a toilet. Which makes me wonder where that sound came from. Like, right. Because you would think, okay, if we got a bathroom sound, then that may be a stone tape recording from an event that happened in the bathroom years yeah. ago. But yeah. if there's no bathroom facilities, why in the world is there a <laughs> toilet flushing exactly. sound? Exactly. Where is that coming from? Maybe it's a growl or hiss by something that we don't hear the full spectrum of. And so it sounds like a toilet flushing to yeah. our ears. Yeah. Now, in the in the Hershey building, one investigator reports having heard a female child's voice on the third floor. Um, and so, and we talked about, you know, the, how horrible it would have been to have been a child growing up yeah, through your development years in this situation. And, and that, that's going to leave a mark. I mean, sure. it's, it's going it, to, it's, it's just going to add to the negative energy that's already there. All right. So I teased this, uh, earlier, uh, I told Adam this before. I, I have not given him the opportunity to read this because I, I wanted to get his his reaction and his take on it. But uh, during a tour with correspondence from Ripley's.com, which is uh, affiliated with the Ripley's Believe It or Not organization, mm-hmm. uh, Ashley McIver, who I mentioned before, is one of the, the asylum hosts. Um, she tells a story uh, 
about one of the more active spirits. And this particular spirit is known as the king. Now, Ashley says the king was a maintenance worker here from the 40s or 50s. And that was his domain. The boiler room, um, you know, the maintenance area, that was where he was. Sure. He was not very he he was not very well and uh, himself and he didn't treat the patients well. Sometimes uh people report smelling cigar smoke uh down in the basement and he is uh known to come across EVPs. He's appeared as a shadow figure and he's even been known to touch people. Hmm. And they said he is not a nice spirit, but he does like the ladies. So not a, not in a good way. Mm, um, yeah. you know, he tends to harass female visitors, um, you know, touch, uh, you know, push, you know, things like that. Mm-hmm. Now the staff at Pennhurst are well acquainted with the king. Um, but they're not certain if they're experiencing poltergeist activity or if it's something more demonic. Hmm. Now, Ashley confides that nothing has ever escalated past him just messing with people. He's come across with a creepy laugh. He's shared his name, but he's even had full conversations on older EVP. So, you know, usually when you are listening to EVPs after the fact, um, you might get short, quick answers to questions. Yeah. But apparently the EVPs that have been recorded from the king, they answer questions and then there can be follow-up. Oh, wow. And the answers seem to be intelligent. And that's abnormal. Yeah. It's certainly not a stone tape type. No. This this would be an entity, whether poltergeist or demonic, who knows. But it's definitely something that is intelligent and realizes that you're there Mm -hmm. and is willing to interact. Now, during this particular investigation, something pretty amazing happened to this crew. Having already heard Ashley's story about hearing a music box, the team reportedly began to hear music in the building. Now, they were rushing to find the source, and they raced upstairs to the second floor and noticed that the music was becoming louder. Okay? So they're moving, and the music's getting louder, filling the entire building. Now, they were all hoping to find something tangible, something there that that would be playing music or that a spirit could be using to play music. Mm-hmm. And as the team hurried up another set of stairs to the third floor, the music got at its loudest. Once they stepped foot on the landing from the stairs to the third floor, it stopped. Hmm. So they, they've rushed up there, and as soon as they get close enough, it stops. Yeah. But later on, 
the crew heard the music again, this time in the basement. Now, like the above floors, no audio source could be detected. And attempting to follow its source in the basement led to sudden stops and variations, as if something was attempting to lure the party into the building's deepest, darkest depth. When you were talking about it getting louder as they were walking, that's what I thought. I was yeah. like, that that sounds like a lure. It yeah. sounds like yeah. them trying to bring them somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. Um that's pretty shocking. Yeah. Okay. If if every aspect of this story is true, I, I have no reason to believe that it's not. Um it's it's incredible. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, at least for this this portion of the campus, which this is the Mayflower Building. Um, I, I've I've never I've never researched anything quite like this, where no, where where you're seeing, like Adam said, a lure, essentially mm-hmm. come come closer. Most of the time, it's a lot of go away. Yep. I don't want you here. You know, I'm I'm going to make all this noise. I'm going to do everything I can to to drive you away. But having played this music and this music being on the third floor and bringing that crew up there to the third floor and then them later hearing it in the basement, that's... It sounds demonic to me. It does. It absolutely does. And And, you know, I know... We hate when people just automatically say, it's a demon. It's a demon. But this sounds like demonic activity. It does. It does. So, and, you know, we've talked about how a demon would wind up in a place like this. Um, You know, if you you think about it, a, a demon would feed on that kind of negative energy. Yep. And it may yep. have been there for decades. It may have caused a lot of it too. It's very possible. I mean, all that all that pain and despair and, and mental anguish. Mm-hmm. I mean, be like a playground for a demon based on yep. what we what we believe that we know about yeah. demons. Right. You know, and, 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 uh, and again there we don't have any evidence of that either, but we have a lot of, of stories and and strange occurrences and and f- entire families who have been just absolutely shaken to their core because of what is assumed to be demonic activity. Right, right. And uh like like I've mentioned before, the the when you have that that much negativity that much pain in an area it kind of sticks to the walls like mm-hmm. that paranormal sludge mm-hmm. like i've called it before right and that is that's gonna feed any demonic activity that maybe wasn't there before anything around will go oh hey check this out yeah. and enjoy living there uh, like when the adams family would dust and they just blow dust everywhere instead of actually dusting <laughs> to get the dust off. It's kind of what it reminds me of, you know, this paranormal sludge just going everywhere. 
And that's what the demons want. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, who knows? You're just speculating. Mm-hmm. If people have gone in there and, and tried to perform some occult rituals, they could have opened a portal. Yeah. You know, that yeah. just allows, you know, these kind of entities to roam in and out. Um, yep. I don't know. All bets are off with this place. I mean, oh yeah. It, it could be absolutely anything. And it sounds like it's almost everything. Yeah. You know, yep, that's true. Anything you could fathom to get out of a haunting, you're getting it here. And it's just it's just incredible to me. Um, like I said, I've I've never researched a place quite like this. Um, no. with no. this much activity this frequently. Um it, it's 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 pretty amazing. Um so I, this is a point in time where we ask you guys, what do you think? Um, do you, do you think Pennhurst Asylum with, with all of its, you know, bad history is just a playground for spirits, ghosts, demons, poltergeists, you name it, whatever. Um, I tend to, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I do too. Um, but let us know what you think. I mean, definitely if we've got listeners, uh, in that area, what spring city is where Pennhurst is, I believe. Um, if, if you live in that area or if you, uh, are familiar with it, maybe, maybe you've, you've driven by it. Maybe, you know, some stories, please let us know, share them with us. And the best place to do that is in our Facebook group. Uh, just go on Facebook, search graveyard tales. You'll find it. Um, it's a, it's a safe place to share these stories. Nobody's going to make fun of you or, or, uh, call you, you know, a loony. Um, everybody just wants to hear these cool stories and, and we've Mm -hmm. had, we've had listeners, uh, tons of listeners share their experiences in the group. We've had many listeners that just, they didn't feel comfortable and they, they sent them to us directly. Um, we've got some listeners with some incredible experiences, um, you know, that we don't share with you guys, um, you know, just out of being courteous to them, but understand that this group is private, you know, you're your, your neighbor, your boss, whoever they're, they're not going to see that unless yep, they're a member exactly. of the group. And if they are, then, Hey, now you got something new to talk about. Mm-hmm. With someone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. Uh, but don't forget to go and check us out on other social media. We're on Twitter and Instagram. Uh, and you can check out our website, which is graveyardpodcast.com. And on our website, you can listen to the show. You can find links to, uh, to purchase Graveyard Tales merchandise, and you can become a patron. Uh, and we always take time to thank everyone who has donated to the show. You have no idea um, how much it helps. Um, yeah. You know, recently we've had some, some equipment fail. We've had some things kind of going bad uh, that we've had to replace, and that stuff costs money. And thanks to your donations to Adam and I's effort. Uh, we've been able to do that and uh, yep. and keep Graveyard Tales going strong. Um, don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. It brings us up the charts. It makes it easier for people to find the show, and it brings more folks into the graveyard. So, for Adam and myself, until next time, we'll save you a seat in the graveyard. See you soon. 
As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. 